Welcome back to the podcast. My guests today are uh, Christine Cunningham. Uh, she is a lifetime Alaskan, columnist for the Anchorage Daily News, uh, is also written for uh, Alaska Magazine, and Steve Meyer, a longtime Alaskan. You moved up to Alaska when you were, was that 14 or so when you were a young teenager? Yeah, it was in, uh, it was in 1971, okay. so <laughs> about <laughs> 50, yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, you, you, you qualify as an Alaskan. Um, their yeah, book, uh, yeah. The Land We Share, A Love Affair Told in Hunting Stories, was released uh, last year, and uh, so we're going to talk about that uh, maybe to start off with. So congratulations on the book, and can you tell me a little bit about uh, the title? How did you come up with that? Was that an obvious choice, and the uh, what does it mean? The question is, is that a love affair with the land, with the dogs, with each other? And it's really all-encompassing. It's uh, the the life we've shared outdoors, like so many people in Alaska. It it feels like a love affair in every sense. It's like the personality and the uh, the cadence, and just a long a long time building building something that just keeps growing. I think the the more time you spend outdoors, the more you grow in special places. But it, and it. It's a love affair with Alaska too, just Alaska itself, <clears throat> you know, and all the all the opportunities we have as Alaskans, all the all the public land that we have access to to do the things we want to do out in the outdoors. Whether you're a hunter, or a fisherman, or a hiker, or whatever you do, you know, unlike any other place really in the world, Alaska is unique in that regard that we have so much freedom. To be able to wander these places and do what we do, it's just incredible. Mm-hmm. I was talking with my Adventure Lit class yesterday about just the public land. And it was an introduction to, to build a fire and how you have the migration of people to California for the 19, or 1849 gold rush. And then migrating up to Alaska for the Klondike gold rush. And you can't do that in a lot of different areas. You're not just going out staking your claim. You're not building a cabin somewhere if you're in Europe. And I said, when you think about public lands, do you think of public lands in Europe? And the kid just had no clue whatsoever. So I said, well, I'm going to tell you then you don't have that. You know, this is very <laughs> unique to the United States and it's a very, it's a great thing to, to cherish. Um, I don't know if it was, it was in one of Steve's um, uh, chapters here. Um, this quote kind of stuck out to me. It kind of goes along with what we're talking, uh, talking about. You said, in the end, successful hunting is about building a holistic relationship with the country. That seems like that's a, a pretty encapsulating uh, quote there. Um, as you've hunted in all the time you've been up here, what have been some of the things that uh, kind of create that, uh, that richer, deep experience with the country? Really, a lot of it is just time in the country. You know, um, from the time I was a kid, I wandered the country whenever I could, you know, constantly outside. I hated being inside. And that, that came with me to Alaska. But the thing I learned pretty quick in Alaska is, you know, unlike what some people might think, there's not a moose around every corner and there, you know, there's not a sheep on every mountain. And so a part of that for me was getting to know the country getting out there, be just being there, you know, year-round in these different places that I would go. And, you know, it's it goes beyond just, well, 
here's the regulation and this is what you can do. It's more of a understanding what's going on everywhere that you are. So you know, you know, okay, this year my area doesn't look so good. Maybe I'm not going to do this, that, or the other thing. So that's, that's a big part of it for me. Mm-hmm. And, it, but, and it's, it's continued to grow with the dog. <laughs> you, you know, these dogs have, uh, Winchester, you know, we had, well, I guess I should go back a little bit. I grew up with hunting dogs. We had uh, Chesapeake's and Golden Retrievers and Labradors. And, but then for about 20 years in Alaska, I didn't have a lot of time for hunting, and I definitely didn't have time to be a good dog parent, a good sporting dog owner. So I didn't. And so then when Christine and I got together and she started thinking a dog might be a good idea, well, by that time, things in my professional life had settled down. And and so we both got labs. Well, then Christine got drunk at a DU <laughs> banquet that she was emceeing. And bought this beautiful Beretta over under 28 gauge. And when she did that, I said, well, now that's all the excuse I need. You need a proper Upland dog. And that's how Winchester (laughs) came into our lives. I mean, you can't have a 28 gauge over and under without a English setter. So, but when he came into our life, it was, it was just, it was a game changer. Mm -hmm. That dog had a prey drive and the best we could do is try to keep up. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Is there a lot of, you don't typically hear a lot about hunting dogs in Alaska. That's definitely, um, you know, a Midwest or, or, or down South sort of thing. So is there a, a pretty large community or a small community or what is it like with the hunting dogs there? I, you know, I guess it, I guess it's, uh, your perspective on it. You know, there, there's a fair number of, of hunters in Alaska that have, you know, retrievers or pointing dogs and, you know, whether it's waterfowl hunting or grouse hunting or ptarmigan hunting, there's some pretty dedicated people doing that. But, you know, it's, it's, it's very different in the lower 48, particularly for the upland birds. Because the, the country's so big, uh, the populations are not what they used to be, and they never were, you know, as good as some places in the States where people go down and hunt pheasants and sharp tails and grouse and all that. So... <clears throat> So it's, it's more about the quality of what you're doing in Alaska. You know, you spend, you spend all day climbing the mountain, so you hope you might find ptarmigan. And when you do, um, maybe there's only a couple, maybe there's four or five. But it's, it's, you know, when people think of Alaska and then experience the reality of it, it's really different. It's, you know, it, and, and with the dog. I mean, you know, with, with our, our setters are big running setters. So they'll be out half a mile, mile ahead of us. But they they can cover so much ground that that it really makes makes you more successful just because they can cover so much ground. Mm-hmm. And when they point, then of course you have to go you have to go see what they got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I should, I should clarify a lot of people in Alaska have dogs and a lot of them have dogs that they bring with them on hunts but as far as like a bonafide legitimate hunting dog um, that's that's what that's what you guys have we do and but like you say alaskans have dogs 
Alaska <laughs> loves dogs. You know, everywhere we go, we see people with dogs. But, uh, but you know, the other side of that, even, even though there is a fair number of, of bird dog hunters, um, you know, in, the, in all the years that we've been doing this, what Christine has maybe once, maybe one time, we've ran into another hunter hunting with a dog or even, or any, any hunt actually. Cause you know, that's the beauty of Alaska. You can, you can get out there. All you got to do is just walk a little bit further than somebody else and, right. and you're by yourself. So mm. it's just that part is so cool. So you, you have big game hunted. Um, what is it about uh, hunting for like ptarmigan seem like that's, Ptarmigan and ducks were uh, were very prevalent in the book. Uh, how did you settle on that, or what about that experience is uh, either like, your favorite or just happened to be what you uh, wrote mostly about? Well, I growing up, when, when I started hunting with my dad when I was five years old, and that was initially it was waterfowl hunting, and then it moved into upland bird hunting. So that's what I kept my teeth on, and I've always loved both of those things. In North Dakota, um, I couldn't hunt big game till I was 14. So all my hunting was small game and bird hunting. And uh, then, then when we came to Alaska, then that changed because now I could hunt, I could hunt whatever I wanted to. So I was really into big game hunting for a long time. Plus, you know, I, I had a, I had a family. I was a young guy, didn't have a lot of money, so. You know, that was part of putting meat on the table, too. And, you know, as, as I've gotten older and, and uh, that isn't so much the case anymore, I just love being in the high country with the dogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love being in the high country no matter what. And I, I don't care if I'm hunting or not. I just love being there. But when you have the dogs with you, that's just that it just enhances the experience so much. Sorry if they're... Sorry if you hear them bark. <laughs> <laughs> no, they got to be part of it. They're uh, they're they're the main they characters. Are. Yeah. So, Christine, how about uh, you? How did uh, how did this become uh, such a big part of your life? Well, um, going back to what you asked Steve about the the relationship or the connections, I think that it's a, it's been a big learning experience for me. Like, even though I've been doing it now for almost 20 years I'm still learning every time I go and it's it's learning that whatever you when you're doing things outdoors you're you're entering into a story that's been going on long before you got there and how to read the read the sign or what what's been what happened here this morning yesterday uh, what's going to be happening after I leave and the more time you spend going year-round you start to pick up on and really feel like a not an expert in the area, but like you have some stake in the area. It, this place that's home for animals is, and you're just visiting, it's, you're more connected than that. You feel more obligated to it than that. And that's where that relationship aspect comes in. For the dogs, what's cool to me is, you know, they're kind of caught up in this, we're in a civilized world. They're domesticated animals. We're indoors a lot together. They're family. And then you go out in the field, and everybody gets to be wild and free. And watching them, 
they're following their nose, you're following them. And, um, and that connection, the way they're, they're acting as a medium for you and bringing all these different gifts to what you're doing. It, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. So even though I love, I mean, I love bird hunting and I love big game hunting. I, I love that as well, but it, it's not as me as bird hunting is, but I, I do love it for totally different reasons. And I, I'd love to do more of it. So that ended up being what you wrote about a whole lot. So when you were deciding how to put the book together, um, or maybe first, uh, whose idea was it to, uh, to, to make a book and then write it together and, um, how you organize the chapters. Did you pick, uh, his chapters and then he chose yours or, or the greatest hits or how did that all come together? Well, <clears throat> who decided that it should happen was Kevin Painter with the U S fish and wildlife service. Okay. He's the guy that, that contacted us and, and said, uh, Hey, why don't you guys do a book? And and we thought about that a little bit, but Ke Kevin, and then subsequent to that, Kevin contacted Alaska Geographic, who does the most of the federal uh, agencies, that sort of thing, like publishing books and that sort of thing. So he contacted Andy Hall with them, and, and they came up with this plan, and so that's how it started. They came to us and said, hey, let's do this. And from there, we spent about a year going through all the all the things that we had. We'd have stuff spread all over the floors trying to figure out which is which is going to work. And But we had like well over 200 pieces to choose from, more than that, like 250 or whatever. But, so that was that was a process. And, you know. Um, I didn't want to have any for Christine because why would I? She didn't want any of mine either. <laughs> but, but no, that's not true. No, we uh, we but, wanted it to be about even. Yeah, we did. We want and and no. Okay, so <clears throat> you know the process of of creating the book you know, when we we got started, we thought well. This is pretty easy. Most of the work's done, but that, that really wasn't true. There's, there was a whole lot of effort put into organizing it. Luckily, they had a, an illustrator, Kathy Lefley, who also did most of the, the work with how the book looks. She did, I don't know, all the terms they use for creating a book, but she did the fonts and all those sorts of things, the, the page spacing. and, and um, But she was also this illustrator and she said we talked to her well maybe you could illustrate some of this for us he's like yeah maybe i could i don't I, i'm not that great well she's great she was awesome and if you've seen the book catches her wonderful and and so we spent you know when you open the book and you see the geese on the right in the inset when you open the book those geese those two canada geese flying took like a month to decide what that was was going to look like we'd go back and forth on the, whether they should both be talking whether they should both not be talking and this was but right. you know that's how the book progresses we'd look at everything and we you know really really looked it over and tried to make really good decisions mm -hmm. everything including what paper so it was a really interesting process for us and really i mean really fortunate that that happened 
when you were looking back at the stuff that you'd written, obviously there was probably stuff from a couple of computers ago. So did you like have the clippings and have to retype everything or did you go back to the computer and copy and paste or how did you accumulate all that stuff? We, we've always kept our, our stuff on, on jump drives. So all we had to do was open the file. And I say that it wasn't really quite that simple because I'm not as good. Because as he didn't do it. Well, I did it. I, I would sometimes forget or I'd, I'd, I'd lose one of the jump drives. I had several different jump drives. I had a spreadsheet and figured out, you know, how do I put this in order of maybe the seasons and then the, the, the seasons of the dog's lives where I'm a new hunter learning. And to me, it was fascinating to put it together and, now when I read it, it, the columns read a little bit different to me in this sequence than if you were just to read one of them. I think that they kind of build on each other. I don't do spreadsheet, but fortunately, she knows how to do them, understands them. So that's really how, how it went. <laughs> when you're looking back at some of those pieces, did it? I'm sure when I look back at some of my earlier stuff, I think, man, what was I even thinking? Like what was going on in my brain? Obviously there's the improvement factor too. So was it fun to look back at some of those things and you didn't necessarily use it for the book, but you thought, man, this was, what was I thinking? Or this is a really good one that might not make the book. How was that? Uh, how was that trip to the archives? A little bit of both. Yeah, it was a little bit of both. Um, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the improvements when, We'd both written quite a bit for various publications before we started writing for the ADN. But once we did that, that really stepped up our game. We really started really cleaning things up. And so that some of the early ADN pieces were like, what the hell was that? I mean, <laughs> they weren't awful, but they not what we really appreciated anymore. So, so yeah, we, there, there was quite a bit of that. And it, it's cool to go back and look and say, because you're going down memory lane too. There's so much of it that's just nothing but good memories and some of them not so good, but we, you know, we uh, like the book itself, the way it looks, the way the illustrations and all that. We, we kind of had thoughts along the lines of some of the old, the old books like, stuff by Gene Hill and Robert Burke and some of those guys. And that's part of where the using the illustrations and, and doing that came from. You know, I grew up reading all that stuff. Love it. So. Yeah. I think there's a difference between that, that, that older type of writing that's less about uh, like stacking bodies and this and that and more about <laughs> the entire experience. Um, and I think that's one of the things I like about the the book is that it's and it can never get old too. If it's just about whether or not you killed an animal or not, like how many different ways you say, then I killed the caribou, then I killed the bear, then I killed the whatever. It just can kind of get kind of old and stale. So one of the ways to keep things fresh is to be looking for those different angles and based on what's going on in your life and in the world you then have the break to the woods in that specific context. So it really, you really can't get old. It's really impossible to write the same column again and again, because those variables change. They do. Yeah. And that, that's what we kind of hope for that it will be 
something that goes on forever. Um, but you know, it's interesting that you you mentioned that about stacking bodies. You know, we, we had a lot of people comment about the the column with the ADN. Some pretty awful, you can imagine, because anti-hunting people and the like. But for the most part, it was all really good good stuff. But one of the comments I would often get was, well, yeah, that was a great story, but you didn't say how many ducks he killed or you didn't say how many birds he killed. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I get that, but that's not what it's about. Mm-hmm. Some of the best stories are nothing's taken. You know? and, and I think yeah. that's that's the part that's maybe so important. We're in a, we live in a world now that, there's so many of us, we can't always take everything, and we just can't. So being able to be out there, you know, fall in love with those animals, care about them, take care of them the best you can, that's just so valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting time now because it's so easy to, or it's easy to market, but also kind of a necessity to market if you don't really have some sort of online presence, then it's, you're kind of at a disadvantage to market, whether you're a a guide or whether you're a writer or this or that. So how have you kind of used social media and used some of the technology to make sure that you're marketing and doing that without it kind of undermining the experience? A lot of people talk about going out there and they're already, already thinking about the shots and the angles and taking the pictures. And so you're not really present because you're you're in social media brain. So how have you utilized it, but not allowed it to ruin the experience? You have to be hyper aware of, of how that can factor in. And there's been times where when you, especially when you're writing on a desk, getting in your head when really for me, the best part of being out there is that I'm getting out of my thinking about why I'm out there. Well, I think maybe a lot of people might think, well, you went so you could write something? Absolutely not. Neither one of us will do that. You know, we go do what we do, and then, you know, two months later, we're like, oh, that was a good story. Or, or maybe it was last week. But One of my favorite stories, and it's in the book, is a story about Winchester um, in the backyard. So this is not your epic Alaskan adventure. This is... <laughs> anybody's dog in the backyard (laughs) and I remember after I wrote it I didn't really put a a lot of thought into what it wasn't when I wrote it um I thought it was I thought it was maybe saying you can enjoy the outdoors anywhere it's it's your frame of mind that hunters are always hunting it's a, a mode of attention and that's definitely what Winchester epitomizes I get this email from a reader and she's a school teacher and she's like, oh, I shared this with my class. Um, you know, it shows that you can write about nothing. <laughs> Hero's journey arc or, or whatever, that, that it doesn't have to be, that you can still hit all these different writers, you know, alliteration. You can, you can still draw in a reader and, and interest them um, without having it be uh all the, I think that the things we think are great are often the mm. least of what we can do as writers. 
Yeah, if it's if it ends up always being some epic story, that doesn't really reflect life. A lot of the times, it's just ordinary and just that. It doesn't mean that it's bad. Doesn't mean that it's boring. Just that basic contentment is why we go out there so much and why it's so nice. I read a study about uh, obviously being out in nature is very very beneficial. Uh, there's a lot of medicinal qualities to being outside, but uh, the study said that yeah. even. 20 minutes of seeing the outdoors. So if you are like driving on your way to work, just seeing that sort of wild can be uh, beneficial. I thought, well, yeah, it makes some sense. My commute and catch a can is about 17 minutes or 18 minutes long. It only varies. Like there's, there's no traffic lights. So it's a super easy drive in the morning and you need to look at mountains and sometimes there's snow. A lot of times it's rainy, but you know, you could see a sea lion, maybe a whale, stuff like that is just yeah, maybe that's why I can endure all the stinking rain and gray down here. <laughs> Christine, Christine has kind of a story about that. She had this, a similar commute, like what you're talking about, when she she was basically an office girl until she invited herself along duck hunting. She can tell you what happened. Yeah. Um, so every morning I would drive to work, and I. On my drive, I would drive by the Kenai River Flats, which are right there at the mouth of the Kenai River, wetlands going out. And when you look out out over it, I would sort of, if I were to look at something, it would be the, the silhouette of the mountains across the inlet. Um, and, and really the ground, the flats themselves, um, in my mind, they were categorized as like, oh, that's a wasteland. You can't build on it. This is pre-hunting 20 years ago, I'm like, ah, you know, big mushy area. <laughs> and then after, after so many years of hunting, I mean, that is sacred ground to me. I, there's so much life out there. It's so rich. And, um, I, I look out, out on those flats now and it's like, wow, I can't believe that I get to see this on my way to work. Um, yeah, no, nothing has a has a totally different meaning. Uh, the first time I went up to the tundra on the north slope, and there's nothing out there. But then, as you start to like zoom in, you see so much more. Whether it be deadheads or you oh. know, e even in there's no real rhythm to the tussocks, so it's so hard to walk on because they're not all the same. Sometimes you can walk between, sometimes on top, and yeah, it's just it's it's incredible. Yes, I love that. There's no real rhythm to the tussocks. That's a great line. <laughs> so, how much has uh, it changed down there? I don't mean to make it kind of uh, sad or the turn, but I'm 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 sure that in the time that you've been there, you've noticed a an influx of people. I remember uh, Ketchikan hasn't grown a whole lot because the it was growing, and then the logging went out, the pulp mill went out, and so it's. A little bit, uh, the population's gone up a little bit since then. It recovered. Um, but Kenai Peninsula is, is pretty hopping. It is. It's either been developed or it's um, some some of the places we can't hunt anymore. And there, there has been, you know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. There has been more people, but not, not a staggering number of people have moved to the peninsula. But we get, you know, the summer fishing, of course, always brings people in. But it really was COVID that really changed things a lot, at least in terms of where 
where we like to wander the mountains and stuff now and before when we rarely saw anybody uh, <clears throat> even even pretty close to the road now we see people a lot and so we, we we do have to go a little bit further back to get away from it and you know it's one of those it's one of those it's a double-edged sword it's yeah, for me, I would just assume nobody was out there. But but the other side of that is it's getting people out, getting them to know the country, and hopefully hopefully they're learning something about it that makes it valuable. And, you know, we, we, we're concerned about, you know, some of the areas where the influx is huge, and, and obviously the critters get kind of displaced from that. You know, it's not just hunting that displaces animals in fact probably less so than than you know that continuous presence of humans but yeah it was a wild west when i came it was literally <laughs> i mean everybody i live in north kenai that's where i started my life here most of us were carrying 44s on our hips or 40 I mean, it was, you know, we didn't, we weren't shooting people, but it was, that's just how it was. If we want, if, as kids, if we wanted to go hunting, we'd just get out on the road and somebody would stop and pick us up. Didn't matter what we, you know, we had rifles or whatever. Those, oh, those days are gone. Yeah. In some ways it's nice to advance past certain things, but some of those skills and some of those opportunities are really nice. Like you said, if you saw a couple of kids with rifles, you know, they were out hunting. Good for them. They're getting outside. Whereas now, you know, we, again, we know how valuable and how great all that stuff can be, but some of these kids that haven't been able to experience it, that either no one's taken them fishing or no one's taken them hunting. So they don't have that, that mentor. Um, or it's just not as interesting as, as staying inside and doing the stereotypical social media gaming right. stuff. So that's, it's pretty unfortunate for kids now because they don't know how much it's it changed. You know, if they were just be, have the opportunity to go outside, then maybe they'd it'd be a little, little happier. Yeah. It's something we think about a lot, you know, and you know, you this this whole, what's it, what's it called? The R three or three R's or something. Yeah. They're, they're trying to recruit more hunters, you know, and you know, I, I think that's fine, but, Taking a kid out for an afternoon isn't the same as really taking a kid and taking an interest in him and spending time with him. You know, it's it's sad to me. Christine and I, we did that, and after a couple of times, like it seemed like more like we were babysitting the, mm. these kids. We, you know, we'd take them for a while in the afternoon, and 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 there was no connection. And, so we just kind of step back from it. Now, if we have people, we'll take people. And but I, I think that's the key for going forward is not an abundance of hunters, but rather a, 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 a reasonable group of responsible people that kind of have been brought into it like a lot of us were in old days, let's say, say. Yeah, I think that's there, there's such a huge difference between going out there to kill an animal and hoping that that experience makes someone want to be a hunter, a dues-paying member of all the stuff, and 
if there's someone who happens to hunt, who's someone that you look up to, then you want something about their lifestyle. Then they can show you hunting and it's different than like you said, babysitting where, you know, are we going to catch it yet? Are we going to get it yet? And that's, that's not what it's all about. And it's hard to explain that to, to someone who doesn't have the mindset of it's more than just the, the, the quarry or, or the end result. So yeah, I'm, I'm a little worried about that too. The mass recruitment just to get revenue for conservation is different than providing value to people's lives who then they're more likely to share it with other people. Then they're going to more, they're more likely to share it with their own kids. Absolutely. Um, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I, I didn't carry a gun for quite a while before you know, I, I got my own gun to carry, but it didn't matter. I just wanted to be there because the, the outdoors and the animals, and you just, you have this, it's such a cool thing just to be able to go. And, uh, sometimes I, I, it's just sad that a lot of kids don't have that opportunity. Yeah. Well, let's get back on a positive note here. Um, What's uh, next for the for the book tour? When's your next uh, speech, uh, speaking engagements or travel? What are you doing with that, Christine? Get out your spreadsheet. Joel. <laughs> we're we're working with uh, the team at Alaska Geo and um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, trying to figure out dates for for a lower forty eight um, book tour. We've done the presentation a few times in Alaska, and uh, it's great because people that were readers of the ADN, we could get to interact with them, or we've done a lot of stuff in our local area, which is fun. But going outside, I think that's going to be a real great opportunity to, to share with people um, visually what this looks like, what this means to us, and, and get to have that interaction uh, and see if this you know, this book is as uh, exciting for others as it is for us because it really is. There's a lot of, for me, there's a lot of heart in this and I'm, I'm proud of it for, for my part. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of the book and I'm a small part. Of it. Yeah, we're, we're really looking forward to that. Um, you know, the kind of the mountain, well, the, in the west where we're looking at is montana wyoming south dakota idaho places that have a lot of outdoor stuff and, and uh but we're working with a whole bunch of different groups that that kind of host these sort of things so that in itself is going to be quite a job just you know figuring out which one's going to work and which one won't but it'll be fun that that part of the world, of course, I love that part. And hard, I'm still riding a horse out on the plains. So. Nice. So, if uh, someone did want to buy the book, where can they get one? That they're online with um, Alaska Geographic, but then also there's Alaska Geographic has retail stores and all the different refuges around the state. So. I know they're stocked at a lot of those retail stores. Yeah, there there isn't a lot of, and we're still working on all this, but there's not not a lot of regular bookstores carrying them. Like it's not on Amazon, and all that sort of thing. So, but the other thing, the people that that 
got involved with this, it wasn't just U.S. Fish and Wildlife. It was also the Park Service and BLM. So the Park Service is also in conjunction with, they work with Alaska Geographic. So any of their facilities will also help. But, you know, the book's gone well everywhere we go. It's been really well received. So we're, and we're, <clears throat> We're pretty committed to it. No matter what, we're, we're going to mm -hmm. be there till the bitter end and try to do the best we yeah. can with it. Well, that's a nice thing now that it's out. Like you didn't have to. It's not like a box office where you right. know if you don't make a lot at the first weekend, it's you know it's out. You have and time. It's going to be. We're fine. thinking maybe the next one will be some some like a photo journal, but nothing's sealed in stone yet or chiseled in stone. Well, anything else uh, you'd like to, to cover here? Um, appreciate your time. It's been uh, great to talk about the book. I'm glad, uh, glad we were able to, to reconnect here. But uh, what do you have for, for a closer or uh, closing thoughts? Well, I, you know, when we're, when we're doing this presentation, there's a couple of things I talk about at the end. Where, where it came from was Kevin Painter, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said to me, what do you think Alaska's public land legacy is? And that's a great question. So I thought about it. Here's kind of the way I, the way I view it. You know, in 1800, there was about a billion people in the world. 75% of the land was still undeveloped. <clears throat> North America, we had 5 billion passenger pigeons. We had well over 30 million bison. By 1914, the last passenger pigeon, Martha, in the Chicago Zoo died in captivity. By the 30s, we had 2.3 billion people, and about 66% of the land was still undeveloped. Time I came here in 1971, we're up to 3.7 billion people, and we're down to about 57 percent of the land undeveloped. And now here we are, the 2020s. There's 8 billion people. 35 percent of the land in the world is remains undeveloped. Um, so, you know that sort of thing. I, I get a little choked up about that because it's wild land is so important to me. So I, so I was looking at some other stuff and I came across a piece that was written about, you know, where is, where is the undeveloped land? Where is the wild land? And they named five places, Australia, Brazil, Russia, Canada, and the United States. And after the United States, in parentheses, they had Alaska. Because that's really where the last remaining land is. And so for me, the Alaska legacy right. for public lands is this is the last place we have to get it right. And we've done a pretty good job so far, and hopefully we'll keep doing that. And we really appreciate you having us on today, Jeff. Wow, great, Dad. That's great. That's perfect. Closer there. <laughs> Thanks again. Really appreciate it. Always oh, great talking to you.